following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Today, the last portion of John chapter 8, it's a continuing dialogue, so the text at verse 48, where I'm going to begin reading, just picks up what has been happening as there's been a discussion between Jesus and Jewish leaders challenging him every step of the way as to who he is, what he has taught, and what he has said, and uh, that dialogue is continuing here and actually coming to a conclusion with this particular section. John chapter 8, I read verse 48 through the end of the chapter, verse 59. Hear God's word. Follow along in your Bible or the Pew Bible. The Jews answered Jesus, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, and yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. God intends every part of his holy word, inerrant and infallible in all it teaches, to bless us and speak to our lives. May he do that today as we hear it. Years ago, I heard a very fine teacher, Dr. John Gerstner, say this. He said, the greatest question that all philosophers must ponder is this. Why is there something instead of nothing? How's that for a question? 
Now his tongue was partly in cheek as he was making this statement. Why is there something instead of nothing? The great question of existence. And if some sleepless night you're tired of counting sheep, perhaps you would try to work out that little puzzle. Either it will instantly put you to sleep as your brain overheats or you'll stay awake the rest of the night. I'm not sure which. Why is there something instead of nothing? Well, as I read the Gospel of John, I think there's another tremendous question that shouts at us in this biblical book on just about every page and almost every paragraph, really. It's like a huge billboard at the side of the road that you keep passing over and over again. And the question that is asked is this, is Jesus Christ truly God? Is Jesus Christ truly God? Months ago when we began studying this fourth gospel, we saw that proving that indeed he is, that Christ is God, that that is the grand purpose for which John wrote. The very opening line of the gospel says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that insistent theme keeps coming all through this book. By the end, in John chapter 20, we read, this is written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. John did not leave his main purpose in writing uh, somehow hidden or cloaked in subtlety at all. It was very bold and it was very constant that he would try to establish by the inspiration of God beyond all question that Jesus was God. That was his single-minded purpose and subject for writing. And so we raise up that question. Is Jesus God? Nothing could be more important than answering that question because your very eternal existence, according to the Gospel of John, rests upon how you answer it. Is Jesus God? If you say he is not, then by all means you should deny him, but also in denying him, you ought to give up on the notion that you are an objective evaluator of facts and evidence. Because the facts and the evidence, if honestly dealt with, will lead to the conclusion that he is God and that he holds in that position the right to receive your heart's adoration and your lifelong obedience and hope. So which will it be? Is Jesus Christ God in the flesh? Or, and the only alternative I really see is that you are acting as your own God substitute. In this last segment of John 8, the discussions between Jesus and his adversaries have really risen in temperature. The heat is up. I can see those who accosted Jesus in this last section being red in the face and really angry as they say most of the things that are said here that we read. And, and you read what happens at the end. The result of it was they were ready to stone him on the spot, no trial or anything else, to stone him for blasphemy. Those who ridicule the idea that he came to earth from timeless preexistence at the right hand of God are seeing him here now, and as they speak to him, they're spewing out 
mockery and venom. It, it feels like molten lava. It gets hotter with every reply. And he confronted them. He said strong things, to be sure. But they don't seem to come in anger, but rather in a no-nonsense, blunt directness. Well, I propose to show you four steps through this text today, four related points as the, as the theme builds here. And first of all, in verses 48 and uh, 49, I want you to see this, the irrational and slanderous opposition that Jesus met on earth because we too will meet it in some way in our Christian lives. You know, you can usually tell when an argument is breaking down if one of the two sides stops discussing the subject at hand or the evidence or the facts of an argument and starts throwing things at character, making character assaults, attacking the opponent personally. If you ever studied logic, there's a name for this. It's called having an odd homonym argument, the, the argument that goes to the man, not to the subject. And in an ad hominem case, you assault the person. You, you see the weakness of your point and you don't know what else to say. And so you just start saying, well, you're really stupid. Or you don't know what you're talking about. And that's what these temple opponents are reduced to as they're accosting Jesus and saying, you are a Samaritan and have a demon. Now, the you are a Samaritan comment was, was really like a racial slur. You know, we, we don't even say it today. We talk about the N-word. Well, that's kind of what this was like, calling him something that he wasn't. He wasn't from Samaria, but Samaritans were so despised that if you really wanted to say somebody was a bad thing, call them a Samaritan. Jesus doesn't even bother to rebuke that because it's blatantly false. But then he says, then they say, you have a demon. Well, Jesus knew name-calling is the sign of a defeated cause, and he didn't really need to deny either of these things. They were lies that were monstrous. He would, by the way, and uh, looked ahead in chapter 9 of what I'll bring you next time. They call him insane. He, he's called insane a number of times in this Gospel of John. You're out of your mind. Psalm 120 is one of many places where a prayer comes in verse 2 of that psalm, deliver me O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. When this happens to us, we have to wrestle with it. We're not Jesus Christ, and we want to rise up and do battle when somebody slanders us. It brought back to my mind as I was studying this a time in 1980 when I resigned from the liberal mainline denomination in which I was ordained and left a congregation of that denomination that I was serving to go out and plant a new church and join the PCA because I thought this Presbyterian church in America represented a place where Scripture was honored and where I could belong. But the individual in charge of the presbytery that I departed from thought it was necessary that he write a letter about me and tell everybody what a bad person I was. He didn't send it to me, but a copy came to me from a friend who got the letter along with all the other pastors of that presbytery. The letter spoke about me and 
I won't tell you some of the things it said. It really kind of surprised me that a church leader would write this kind of letter. It, it was a curiosity to me as much as it was an insult. But one of the things he said was that I was a dangerous and divisive fundamentalist. Ah. Well, my blood boiled, as anybody's would, for a couple days. I knew I could cross swords with this person, but I thought, then, what would be the point? My feelings were hurt, of course. I knew that this had gone to many people. And I was ready to, you know, sit down and fire off one of my best in reply. But as I thought about it, I'm thankful for God's grace. I'm not boasting in it. I'm just thankful for it that, that I was able to be calm and say, Lord, thank you for letting me wear the same badge of honor that Jesus wore. At least they recognized me as someone who belonged to him because this is the kind of thing they called him. And I remembered also a text that I tell you to remember if you're ever in a situation like that. First Peter 2.23 is the master word when Peter said, writing about Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but he entrusted himself to him who judges all things justly. Secondly, notice how John 8.51 is positioned in this section. It almost seems like it doesn't belong there because it's not really part of the ongoing argument, but in the midst of the argument, Jesus interjects this statement, and John reproduces it, preceded by those words, truly, truly, and when we hear that, it's a kind of emphasis. Here's something really important. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Here in the midst of this argument is a promise of eternal life burning bright in the midst of dark controversy. Now, what does Jesus mean that those who trust in his word will never see death? Certainly, we know it doesn't mean, our common sense tells us it doesn't mean we won't physically die. That would defy all common sense. It would defy natural experience. No one can tell us that Christians don't die. Jesus himself died. He was born in a mortal body, and it wasn't real long after he spoke this that he would go by that horrible pathway, that horrible means of crucifixion to a grave where his body was truly dead. So he wasn't saying anyone who believes in me won't experience physical death. If we put this saying in context of everything else we know from the Gospels, we know he's talking about what is often called the second death, the final stroke of death that is not physical but spiritual, that unthinkable experience of souls being cut off from God in everlasting woe and suffering. Yesterday I was able to tell the grieving family that I believed with all my heart that the soul of their little boy was with those that Hebrews calls the souls of the righteous made perfect. Well, that would be, in other words, escaping the second death. Our souls not being condemned. This idea of not seeing spiritual death is repeated in John, or actually said earlier in John 5.24, where Jesus said, truly, again, same introduction, truly, truly, I say to you, 
whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he passes from death to life. Not from life to death, from death to life. The death experience, in other words, for a Christian is, yes, a fateful stroke to their body, but not a stroke to their soul. And we escape and can expect to escape the sting and the curse of death because all of that crashed down upon Jesus on the cross. He took the sting. He took the curse in our place. And the second death will not touch us. The great Augustine commented on John 8, 51. Here's what he said. The death from which the Lord came to deliver us was the second death, eternal death, the death of hell and utter damnation with the devil and his fallen angels. So yes, we will physically die. And yes, no one's going to tell you that is pleasant. That can come with with very hard things. It can make us groan to anticipate it and, and weep in the aftermath of it for those we have lost. And do I need to remind you what you're constantly forgetting or putting away from your consciousness? that you are one week closer to your own physical death than you were the last time you sat here on a Sunday morning. We all will face this. But you see, it's as if in Christ all we're going to get is the glimpse of physical death, if, if this is a helpful analogy. You know, imagine that there would be some terrible scene at the side of a road, a high-speed highway. Maybe there's been a really bad car wreck and and cars are twisted and mangled and you can realize that in those cars that people may have died or there's something really awful to behold and you're speeding along the highway and zoom, you see it coming and then you're past. That's a little bit what it's like for a Christian to die. We go at speed on the highway and we pass that reality and it's behind us. It doesn't capture us. It doesn't destroy us. It has no hold on us. We are not like those unsaved individuals, unbelievers, who go into eternity with unpardoned sin on them, like carrying a a backpack. Can you imagine carrying a backpack that somebody had filled up with radioactive waste from a nuclear plant and being consigned to carry that into eternity? (laughs) That's not a bad idea for what hell is like to carry your unforgiven, unresolved sins forever, never to be relieved, never to be taken away, and have your soul bear the weight of those as they get heavier and heavier and they destroy you. Strange position, perhaps, for this promise of Jesus, but I see it as if Jesus was even giving a last warning to these opponents of his, For even they could have heard what he said and responded if they had repented, if they had had faith, if they had kept his word, believed his word, they could have escaped seeing death, even at that point. But we know that they did not. They turned away. Well, as a third point then, verses 53 to 58 bring everything to a climax for this chapter. I've said we've had this dispute. It's been heightening in intensity and in sharpness. And now in the subject about Abraham, 
which the Jewish opponents raise because when Jesus says, never taste death, they scratch their heads and say, wait a minute, the greatest man we know died, Abraham. Are you telling me you're greater than Abraham because you're not going to die? You see, they keep bringing up these facetious points to try to challenge Jesus. Are you greater than our prophets? And the response that comes in this third point I would state this way is that Jesus tells us that both Old Testament and New Testament speak with one voice about Christ. Verse 56 says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He did see it and he was glad. And then the climactic verse 58, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, if you hear this only with human ears and without ears of faith, you would say, why, this Jesus, and they did say that he's guilty of the most insufferable arrogance. Who do you think you are, they said to him. Who do you think you are? You're making yourself better than Abraham. Let's ask what it meant that Abraham longed to see the day of Jesus. After all, he lived 1,850 years, almost two millennia before Christ. The original Greek word here for longed is a word that means to yearn or to be ready to leap like a runner poised at the blocks, ready to leap into action the minute the starter's gun sounds. After all, Abraham had these great promises that he would inherit a land and there would be a people so numerous it couldn't be counted all from his body when that was, you know, really impossible to believe. He was given these promises. Who got greater promises from God than Abraham? And the text here says he was ready to leap forward in his faith, believing that if God made a promise, it was as good as done. You remember him taking his son Isaac by God's inward urging somehow? He understood one day, take your son, take the firewood, take the knife, and offer Isaac. The only hope of God's promise coming true and kill him seemed ridiculous. And he was ready to do it, as you know. And we believe that even in that act, as he was stopped from killing Isaac and and the promise came that the Lord would provide the lamb, There, too, Abraham, by faith, saw God providing, God fulfilling the promise, and his faith was strengthened, and he yearned forward to believe God would meet every promise. That's what's being said here. And therefore, Abraham and all like him, all the Old Testament prophets had only one way of biblical salvation, united with us, united with the New Testament, epistles, with Paul, with everyone else, with John. Galatians 3 makes it very clear that Abraham believed God, and it was that faith that God counted for his righteousness, not some alternative Old Testament scheme of salvation, and now we have a different salvation, one salvation, looking to one Christ. The gaze of Abraham anticipated the cross and the resurrection, just as our faith looks back and embraces that same thing. John 8, 58 is climactic here because in it, Jesus is declaring once more, this isn't the first time he said it, but it's a new way of saying it in a climactic way when he says that before 
Abraham existed, I am. He makes himself timeless. I pre-existed Abraham. He doesn't say before Abraham lived, I was. I am. And listen, these Jewish antagonists may not have been the smartest in picking up everything that was said in this dialogue, but they understood with great clarity what Jesus was saying in using those little words, I am. They knew he was claiming that Old Testament name of God, I am who I am. And they knew it so well that they were ready to pick up stones and kill him on the spot for blasphemy. You know, even in this year, 2014, after decades of studies, medical research, I remember when I was in junior high and we were being shown various films in science class and so on to try to discourage smoking. And uh, I think the research was still early. You know, the cigarette ads were on TV were all proclaiming what a great thing it was to smoke and how good it tasted and it would refresh you and do all kinds of good things for you. But the science was saying, oh no, it will kill you. And we were starting to get that when I was 12 and 13 and 14 in films we were shown in school. Well, certainly by now, decades later, we know smoking cigarettes really does cause lung cancer. And yet there are a small percentage of people who would probably scoff at that and say, these things won't harm me. I've used them for a long time. I know better than those researchers. They're just anti-tobacco people. Well, I say to you that if you deny that Jesus of Nazareth was the son of highest God, you are mishandling and denying far more momentous and obvious blunt evidence than any of the facts that would tell you something about cigarettes and cancer. The evidence is huge. Jesus Christ is excluded from being put in the ranks of all mere great men. He's in a class by himself. One writer says he, is, he has a most peculiar originality. That's an understatement. In his claims, his promises, his speech, his miracles, his cross, his resurrection, Jesus stands alone at the pinnacle of human history. There is no leader with feet of clay as every leader does, you know. We're, we're into the season now. Who's going to be president? So the minute somebody pops up, governor of Texas might be prisoner. Bam! Let's go after him. Take him down. And surely there's something in a closet somewhere by which anybody can be taken down. And that's what these people were trying to do to Jesus. But you can't take him down. Jesus Christ presents himself with sheer originality in his timeless and divine origins. Hebrews 13.8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. He's the rock of ages. But these people thought a little stone would bring him down. Give me a rock. I'll take care of this guy. No stone that they could throw could possibly damage his eternal origins, his great power, his sovereign ruling lordship over our lives from that day forward. 
quoted Augustine once today, and I'll go to him again. He has a great quote when he said this about this text. As a man, Jesus fled that day from the stones. But woe to those from whose stony hearts God has fled. Jesus evaded their stones. And from that time forward, God evaded these men who thought they could bring down the Lord Christ. There's only two primary responses to Christ. This is a very basic message today. You say, Pastor, this is just so basic. Is Christ God? Is Jesus God? Well, it's the most basic question. We've got to be sure about because everything else stems from it. If you make the right decision on this question, you'll follow a path of getting all kinds of other things right. If you make the wrong decision on this question, there's no possibility of you knowing the truth. There's no possibility of you rescuing your soul. Remember that Jesus said early in this chapter, verse 24, he told these people what their fate would be if they would not believe in him. You will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he, the one from God. And so I say to you, to the rest of you, I hope, who have some inkling to believe that Jesus indeed is God. If Jesus, who died at Calvary and rose again, was in truth the seed of Abraham, the promised one that Abraham even yearned to meet and to see, and he in his faith, looking long distance, did rejoice that he would come, then think what that proves about the comprehensive purposes of God being worked out, not in a moment as he said, oh, I don't know what else to do with these stubborn people. I guess I'll have to send my son. No, Jesus was the one who was planned by the Father before Abraham was. From all eternity, he came out of eternity and into time. And he did that in order to lift you out of time and into eternity. Since Jesus is indeed no less than the Son of very God, he absolutely is able to save unto the uttermost anyone, everyone who comes to him by God through faith. Settle that basic question and proceed from there. And our Father, we thank you that even in the insulting controversy that John here contains as your son was being mocked and insulted and said that he had a demon. We see him standing there resplendent in his divine nature and power, speaking plainly, speaking truthfully. Father, we too have our questions. We too see things that just don't seem to work out well in our logic. And we say, if God is ruling, why this? Why that? What is happening over here? But may we settle the most important question. Your son is very God, a very God. Come to earth to seek and to save those that are lost. May that question be settled. Help us then to proceed by faith from there as Abraham, with his long-distance faith, proceeded and brought you glory as he trusted you. We ask in Jesus' name.